0: The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. It's very nice to be here. I thank Jeff for inviting me. Uh, Really good to see all of you. Today's topic is dependent origination. And one of the very first people to ever introduce that topic to me was Tan Santikaro. He was a monk of about three years when I first met him at Ajahn Buddhadasa's monastery in southern Thailand. At that time, they were doing a 10-day retreat for the first 10 days of every month, and all these hippie travelers would show up, somewhere around 100 people, and Santikaro and another Western monk and a Thai monk would run this retreat for these 100 hippie travelers. Uh, It was a very important retreat for me. Uh, By the time I left that retreat, I was meditating, not just because it was good for me, but because I actually wanted to meditate. That, That actually made quite a difference. And that was one of the first times I was ever exposed to dependent origination. Lots happened since then. Santicaro became Ajahn Santicaro. Ajahn Buddhadasa died, Santikaro returned to the States, uh, found it rather difficult to be a monk without a monastery, and returned to lay life, and married Jo Marie. And they were building, are building a retreat center in Wisconsin. And then this past winter, Caro was again in Thailand as he goes frequently to teach, And unfortunately, he got quite ill and had to return to the States, and they discovered that he had a non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. And he's been receiving treatment at the Mayo Clinic ever since. He's better. Uh, I had an email from him a week and a half ago, and he's home most of the time, back at Liberation Park in southern Wisconsin, and goes to the Mayo Clinic for his chemotherapy, I think about once a week. Anyhow, his email, it sounded like he was doing all right. But he makes his living teaching the Dhamma. And when you're recovering from a very serious disease, it makes it pretty impossible to travel around teaching the Dhamma. His wife, Joe Marie, is a nurse. But she hasn't been able to do as much nursing as she normally would because she's got a full-time job taking care of Santi So, they are in need of money, and I thought, well, what can I do? I've got this day long coming up at the Sati Center, Yeah, we'll just give all the teacher Donna to Santi Caro. After all, he was one of the most influential teachers in my early career, and has been a friend, uh, a teacher, a student, and a teaching partner over these last few years. We've taught a couple of retreats together. Uh, we have incredibly wonderful Dharma discussions when we're teaching together. It's just fantastic. And we seem to be much on the same page. So uh, just do what I can to support he and Joe Marie. So that's why today is a benefit. <coughs> So the topic is dependent origination. The first thing I should probably say is the ending of the Metta Sutta. By not holding two fixed views, the pure-hearted one having clarity of vision, being freed from all sense desires, is not born again into this world. The key thing is by not holding fixed views. What I'm going to tell you today is my understanding of dependent origination as of March of 2011. (laughs) Okay? I should not be holding to the fixed views, and you should not take anything that I say here as a fixed view. This is my understanding, and hopefully there's things in there that will help you understand What's necessary to have a right view, which can't be clung to, so that you can see what's actually happening. That's what liberation is about. That's the method. Seeing what's truly happening. Seeing it so clearly that you understand that not only is there nothing worth clinging to, nothing can be clung to. And then you have the impetus to let go, which, as I think we all know, is the heart of the spiritual path. So why do we die? I mean, it means you know, like heart disease or cancer or stepping in front of a bus. I mean, why do we die? If you were making this up, would you make it up that we died? I mean, uh, think about it. You get born. That's traumatic enough. And then you do the diaper thing. And you just get over that, start having fun. They ship you off to school. You do 12, 16, 20 years of school. And then they put you to work. You work for 40 years. Finally, finally, you can start having a good time and you die. What's going on here? Why is it like that? Could it be that uh, maybe we're not doing something we should be doing? Uh, I mean, what if, we, what if we like hung a bunch of crystals in the window and... No, wait, we've been doing that for years and we're still dying. Maybe we're doing something we shouldn't be doing. Do you realize that over 90% of the people that ever ate food are dead? So, no, that's not going to work either. Well, one thing's for sure if you get born, you die. If you don't get born, you don't die. It would appear that birth is a necessary condition for death. Of course, that only raises the question, why do we get born? I don't mean the gleam in your father's eye. I mean, why bother being born if you're only going to wind up dead? But being born is a popular thing to do, like everybody I know did it. In the spring, you know, the birds are doing it, the bees are doing it. So, so what's this being born about? Why does that happen? it would appear that Mother Nature has this urge to become. And this urge to become begats all this borning, and being born winds up in death. So what's this becoming about? Well, this didn't used to be, well, Didn't used to be IMC, didn't even used to be a church, didn't used to be a building. There was just a bunch of stuff, right? Probably out there in the parking lot. And then they took all the stuff, the wood and the metal and the glass, and they made it stick together and it became a building. The pieces clinging together is what it took to make it become something. And as we know, becoming leads to birth and death. So, clinging. What about clinging? Where does that come from? What do you cling to? I mean, suppose you got a pair of worn-out socks, got holes in them. Somebody says, Hey, can I have those socks? You're like, yeah, sure. Right? You're not clinging to that. You're clinging to the good stuff, the stuff you really want, the stuff you crave. If you really want something, That's craving. And when you get it, you're going to make sure you keep it. That's clinging. And clinging leads to becoming, birth, old age, sickness, death, pain, sorrow, grief, lamentation, and all the rest of the dukkha. So the craving, which causes the clinging, where does that come from? Well, what do you crave? Uh, Chocolate ice cream? Why do you crave chocolate ice cream? Because it comes in a round container. (laughs) No, because it's brown. Probably not. Uh, You crave chocolate ice cream because when you eat it, it tastes good. It generates pleasant taste vedna. You get a sugar rush followed by a butterfat hit. Oh man, lots of pleasant vedna there. And the pleasant vedana make you crave it. And if you crave it and you get it, you cling to it, and that leads to becoming birth, death. All right, these pleasant vedana, where do they come from? Well, the pleasant vedana that make you crave ice cream, they don't really arise when you see the ice cream in the grocery store. They don't really arise when you're paying for it. Or even when you're taking it out of the bag. Or even when you take the lid off. Or you stick the spoon in. The pleasant vedna that causes you to crave it arises when the ice cream hits the tongue. Contact. That's when it happens. And the vedna is right there. And then there's the craving for more. And you eat half that round container. And then there's clinging becoming Birth and death. All right, these sense contacts. Well, they seem to happen because you left your senses hanging out in the environment. You sit down to meditate, you close your eyes to keep your visual sense from hanging out in the environment. But you know, the street noise still comes in because you left your ears hanging out in the environment. If you have working senses. then you're going to have sense contacts. You can't survive without working senses. They're a survival mechanism. And when they have sense contacts, they will inevitably generate Vedana. Pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. We crave the pleasant Vedana, and we crave for the absence of the unpleasant Vedana. And this craving leads to clinging, becoming, birth, old age sickness, death, and all the rest of the dukkha. Well these senses, well they're part of having a mind and body. A mind and body with no senses would be senseless. You wouldn't survive very long. Uh, I mean maybe they could force-feed you or something, but the senses really are a tool. They're an essential part of having a working mind and body. And having senses, they're going to have sense contacts which is going to produce vedna, which if you're not careful, will lead to craving clean, becoming birth, death. So mind and body. Mind and body is dependent upon consciousness. If you have a mind and body that's not conscious, and it stays that way, well, then it's in a coma and it dies. It takes some serious intervention to take a non-conscious mind and body and make it keep living. You've got to bring it back to consciousness. So mind and body is dependent upon consciousness. And consciousness, well, that's dependent on mind and body. I mean, okay, maybe you've been to England, you've been to haunted castles, and you encountered some ghosts that didn't have a body, or at least you thought you did, but you don't generally tend to run into consciousness that doesn't have a mind or a body. Right? It's the interplay of the mind and body that generates the consciousness. And that consciousness is necessary to have a working mind and body. The two are interdependent, like two sheaves leaning against each other. You pull one away, the other falls over, just the same. So these interdependent mind and body and consciousness have senses which get sense contacts that produce vedana, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, which if you're not careful leads to clinging, craving, becoming, birth, death, old age, sickness, all the rest of it. This is dependent origination. This is the heart of the Buddha's teachings. Sariputta quotes the Buddha as saying, he who sees the Dhamma sees dependent origination. He who sees dependent origination sees the Dhamma. This is basically what the Buddha is pointing out. Now, when we think of the essence of Buddhism, often what we think of is the Four Noble Truths. But if you examine the Four Noble Truths, they are a summary of some of the key points of dependent origination. My teacher, Aya used to say the Four Noble Truths are dependent origination in telegram style. I guess now we have to say in Twitter style. The first of the Four Noble Truths, Dukkha happens. Everyone knows the word Dukkha, right? You know, Bummer bummers happen. That's the best translation I know of. Usually translated as suffering or unsatisfactoriness. But you get born into this world and dukkha will happen. That's the summary of death, old age, sickness and death is dependent upon birth. The second noble truth that the origination of dukkha is dependent upon their being craving. And that's a summary of Craving, clinging, becoming, birth, old age, sickness, death, and all the rest of the dukkha. The third noble truth, you don't want dukkha, don't crave. That's pointing out that once it gets into craving, you're on a slippery slope. And if you don't want dukkha, you're going to have to deal with the pleasant and the unpleasant vedana in some way that doesn't lead to craving because otherwise it's craving, clean, becoming, birth, and dukkha. And then the fourth of the Four Noble Truths is the path of practice that enables you to learn to quit craving. So that's a little bit different from dependent origination. But the dependent origination is the key idea. Often when dependent origination is depicted in the suttas, there are twelve Items that are discussed the way I just laid it out is ten items working in the so called reverse order and noticing what each depends upon as a prior condition in other words craving is dependent upon there being pleasant or unpleasant Vedana it doesn't arrive it doesn't arise without there being some Vedana Just like death depends upon something being born. You never find something dying that wasn't born. The depictions of dependent origination in the suttas sometimes are given in this reverse order, sometimes in the forward order, sometimes in the arising, sometimes in the ceasing, sometimes with nine links, eight links, three links, five links, most commonly though with twelve links. Two additional links are tacked on before consciousness and it's given in the forward order. The most famous depiction of these twelve links, twelve items, is the Tibetan Wheel of Life, which is a circle being held by Yama, the Lord of Death. You can see his fangs at the 12 o'clock position, and his claws at 10 and 2, and his feet down at 5 and 7, and his tail swishing back and forth at 6. And he's holding this wheel with a number of concentric circles. The innermost bullseye circle, there's a rooster, a snake, and a pig, each biting the tail of the other. The rooster represents greed, the snake represents hatred, and the pig represents delusion. The ring outside of that, there are a bunch of beings coming out of states of woe to really good states and then progressing back down into states of woe, the cycle of existence. The next ring is the ring where the artist has the most fun because it depicts the seven realms of existence. At the lowest realm, There are the hell realms, and they are usually depicted in ways that Dante would be proud of. You know, people being boiled alive and eaten alive and stabbed repeatedly and, you know, all the good stuff that goes on in hell. Above that, we have the realm of the hungry ghosts. These are beings with giant bellies and little tiny necks who never get enough. They supposedly were very greedy in their previous life. Then we have the realm of the asuras, the warring gods. They're always fighting. They seem to own a large five-sided building just south of Washington, (laughs) (laughs) D.C. Then there's the animal realm with all the animals. and The artist has fun painting deer and rabbits and all the cute little creatures. Then there's the human realm, usually depicted with people doing all the sorts of things, working and having fun and whatnot. And then finally at the top, there's the heavenly realms, all rolled into one instead of, what is it, 27 heavenly realms. So many I can't keep track of it. But there you got people, you know, laying around on clouds, you know, listening to music, eating ambrosia, your usual picture of heaven. But the most important aspect of the wheel of dependent origination is the outer circle, because that's where dependent origination is depicted. At 12 o'clock, there is ignorance. Ignorance is depicted as an old blind person trying to make their way through the forest. We are ignoring what's actually happening. And because we're ignoring, we keep, well, bumping into dukkha. Dependent upon ignorance are sankharas, Sankara may be the most important word in all of Pali to understand and it is certainly one of the most difficult to translate accurately. Often you find Sankara translated as karmic formations in a discussion of dependent origination. Well, yeah, that's part of Sankara. You find it tra- the same word translated as mental formations when it's talking about the five khandas, meaning your thoughts, emotions, memories. You find it translated as compounded things in a more general sense. None of these are inaccurate, but none of them capture the depth of this word. Remember, the Buddha wasn't using different words for different contexts. He was using a single word, sankara. Tanjeff translated as fabrications. That's pretty good. Santikaro translates it as concoctions. I think that's even better. Concoctions and fabrications both have the sense of something that's made, but also something that's not quite true. He came home late last night and concocted some story about having a flat tire, right? Okay, so out of ignorance we concoct the world. All of the things of the world are concoctions. They are made. Uh, The carpet, the chair, the sitting bench, the building, the Caltrain, Even things like love and truth and beauty. These are still concoctions in the sense that we create them. We create them with our mind. Some things we create with our hands. and We create them with our mind. This creating of separate entities in the universe... Is a useful thing, given our little pea brains can't take in the whole universe. But it does tend to hide some of the depth of what's going on. So out of ignorance of the holistic nature of the universe, we concoct all of these bits and pieces. The concoctions are depicted on the wheel of dependent origination as a man sitting at a potter's wheel making pots some of which are very nice, and some of which are misshapen, and some are broken. Some of our concoctions are very nice, and some are misshapen and broken. Next on the wheel is consciousness, depicted as a monkey swinging from branch to branch. When you were meditating, perhaps you encountered this monkey mind. What this is depicting is that consciousness is dependent upon having an object. It's not possible to be conscious without an object. Now, you can be conscious of nothing, but you've just made an object out of nothing, nothingness. So consciousness requires an object. And we'll talk about this a bit more this afternoon. And then, mind and body is dependent upon consciousness. That is, mind and body without consciousness doesn't survive. Mind and body is depicted as two people in a boat. One is pulling the boat along and the other is lying prone and is long for the ride. Obviously, one of them is mind and one of them is body. One of the first insight practices that is given is to figure out which is which to examine your body, examine your mind, see that there are two, that is, they have different functions, but they are very much interrelated, and furthermore, figure out who's in charge. One in charge is obviously pulling the boat along. I'll leave that as an exercise to the reader. So, having a mind and body, it has senses, depicted as a house with five windows and a door, the five windows being the five external senses, and the door being the mind, which in Buddhism is the sixth sense. That's followed by contact, a couple embracing, and then Vedna, which is depicted as a man having arrows shot into his eyes. Unpleasant Vedna. Then there's clinging a uh, craving craving is depicted as a very fat person sitting at a table and eating this fully laden table and then there is the craving a clinging which is a person picking fruit and putting it into baskets which are already so full the new fruit just simply rolls onto the floor onto the ground then becoming a pregnant woman Birth, a woman with an infant, and death, a corpse. Now, there are a number of interpretations of these links. The most orthodox Theravadin interpretation would be found in the Vasuddhimagga, and that's the three lives model, saying that these 12 links represent three lifetimes. Ignorance and sankaras, or as it's interpreted there, karmic formations, are your previous life. In your previous life, you acted out of ignorance, and therefore the karma that you created is what resulted in your birth in this life, where you are conscious, have a mind and body, senses... They get contacts, that produce vedana, and if you're not careful, there's craving and clinging. So the biggest part of it is this life, and then becoming birth and death are your next life. Except, I don't think that's what the Buddha meant. I think that's a serious misinterpretation of what the Buddha meant. And furthermore, it has a very serious logical flaw. Frequently in the suttas, you find the Buddha saying, with the ceasing of ignorance, there's the ceasing of sankharas. With the ceasing of sankharas, is the ceasing of consciousness. With ce- you get the picture. All the way up to the with ceasing of birth, is the ceasing of old age, sickness, death, and all the dukkha. All right, so you need to cease the ignorance. If you want to make all of this stop. But the ignorance that you need to cease is in your previous life. This is a problem. I mean, you probably don't remember much about your previous life, but I seriously doubt you can go back and remove the ignorance from your previous life. But that would be the implication of the three lives model. So I think the three lives model we can discard as just being a complete misinterpretation of what the Buddha was teaching you could make a pretty good case for a two-lives model, that everything before becoming is the current life and becoming birth and death are the next life. Uh, maybe. I don't think, however, that's what the Buddha was really teaching. Ajahn Buddha Dasa has one of the very best books on dependent origination called practical dependent origination Uh, and in that he talks about moment to moment dependent origination. I think this is a much more useful way to look at dependent origination. He's saying that it doesn't cover multiple lifetimes that basically you get all of these links with every sense contact. I'll give you an example. Let's say you never had a mango, right? You go to the grocery store one day, you're in the produce section and there's a sign, mangoes, and you're like, oh cool, I heard about mangoes. And you go over and you look at it, oh, pick one up. Let's say you get lucky, you get a ripe one. It's like, oh, I should try this. So you take it home and you peel it and you make a big mess, right? Because that's what happens the first time you deal with a mango. And now you got a piece of mango. You have a mind and body that's conscious, it's got senses and the mango hits the tongue, contact, Vedna, oh very pleasant Vedna, more mango, really good, pleasant Vedna, this is good stuff, I should have some more craving, in fact, you know my friends Bob and Carol and Ted and Alice, they've never had a mango, I should turn them onto mangoes, right? So you go back to the store, you get another mango, you go see your friends, you turn them on the mangoes, right? And they're like, wow, this is so cool, thank you so much. You have just become the mango bringer, right? Every time you go see your friends, you bring a mango, right? You've given birth to the mango bringer. And then the next time, they're like, oh, cool, a mango. And the next time, oh, thanks for the mango. And then it's like, what's with the mangoes? Uh Uh-oh, death of the mango bringer. You're going to need to recreate another sense of self because that one's not working anymore. This self that we have is a made-up thing. We think it up or emote it up, and it doesn't stick around very well. It winds up dying all the time, and we have to keep giving birth to it. So Ajahn Buddha interpretation of dependent origination is to look at our sense contacts and realize how, based on our sense contacts and the Vedana they produce, we get caught in craving and clinging and make up a sense of self. A sense of self which is highly impermanent, winds up dying, disappearing quite frequently, and we have to do it again. This is a much more helpful and useful interpretation of dependent origination, a much more, as he says, practical way to work with dependent origination. But I don't think that's what the Buddha meant either. I think that all the attempts to interpret dependent origination in a linear fashion are doomed to failure. I don't think it's a linear description of anything. There are certainly some aspects of it that are linear. And the links between any two adjacent items is certainly linear. We need to look at sort of what the history of thought was in India at the time of the Buddha. Cause and effect, as we think of it, was not a well-understood phenomenon. The reason that things happened was due to, take your choice, Fate, accident, the gods making it happen, ascetics and Brahmins of great power making it happen. So they didn't have down the sense of cause and effect that we had. One of the things that the Buddha discovered was that, no, this is all very lawful. It happens in a very lawful way. And furthermore, there's a method for controlling what happens. He discovered what I learned in mathematics classes, necessary conditions. I mentioned that birth is a necessary condition for death. A necessary condition means that if this doesn't happen, that's not going to happen. If that happened, you can guarantee this happened beforehand. When the Buddha talks about dependent origination in its most general form, he talks about this, that conditionality. With this as a necessary condition, that arises. With the ceasing of this necessary condition, that does not arise. And so what the Buddha was looking for the night of his enlightenment, right, was what to do about old age, sickness, and death. Remember, he sat down under this Bodhi tree after receiving this offering from Sujata. Sujata, who thought he was the tree deva, the fertility deva, living in that tree, and wished to thank him for the birth of her son, so she brought him this rice pudding. And so he eats the rice pudding, and he decides he's going to sit under this tree till he figures out what to do about old age sickness and death or the flesh rots from his bones so he asks why do we die and what he discovers well birth is a necessary condition for death and then he continues on examining things and discovering certain necessary conditions coming up with what is now formulated as these links of dependent origination. This is discussed in the Samyutta Nikaya in the discourse entitled The City, which is Samyutta 1265. There's a bit of it on your handout there, some of the key points. Although the Buddha's enlightenment is discussed in a number of suttas, and the most common Description of what he was up to that night was practicing the jhanas, remembering past lives, seeing beings passing away and re-arising according to their karma, and then formulating the Four Noble Truths. It makes a lot more sense to think that he was working on, why do we die? That he was basically discovering a collection of necessary conditions. And having discovered sufficient number of necessary conditions, he was able to formulate the dukkha happens because of craving. Meaning that if you can stop craving, the dukkha won't happen. Second and third noble truth. The first noble truth being the recognition. If you get born, you'll experience dukkha. this discovery of this collection of necessary conditions he formulated as this teaching on dependent origination and then people took it and ran with it and you wound up eventually with the three lives model and the moment-to-moment look but it's really a mnemonic device for remembering a number of important necessary conditions a pair of things that are related via a necessary condition. And that the trick for manipulating the universe isn't to do sacrifices to the gods, which was the big deal in his culture, or to pray to them or anything else, but to find a necessary condition that you have some chance of manipulating and manipulate it so it doesn't happen. And this will prevent the result from happening. The Buddha said he taught one thing, just one thing, the end of Dukkha. Now, he also said that old age, sickness, death, pain, sorrow, grief, lamentation, despair are Dukkha, right? But he got old, sick, and died. Now, if he did come to the end of Dukkha and he got old, sick, and died, then I think we have to look at not taking old age sickness and death as being literally what he overcame. What he overcame was, well, the translation for dukkha that I like is bummer. He overcame getting bummed out about old age sickness and death. Right? By not craving for things to be other than there were, there wasn't a problem that this is what he was teaching the overcoming of craving frees you from the negative reaction to experiencing unpleasant vedana the buddha continued to experience unpleasant vedana sometimes he would say he would give the introduction to a dhamma talk and then he would say to sariputta mogalana or ananda please elaborate and he would go lie down because his back required that he go lie down. It was producing enough unpleasant Vedana that he couldn't sit there and give the talk. But he had overcome the craving for it to be otherwise and he did what he needed to do to take care of it, which was to go lie down. And then when Sariputta had finished the talk he would come back and say, if I'd given the talk I'd have said exactly the same thing. So this collection of necessary conditions is, yes, indeed the heart of the Dharma. The recognition that craving is a necessary condition for dukkha, and not craving will prevent the arising of dukkha. Now there are a large number of other implications of dependent origination, and I will go into those after we do Q&A period and maybe sit a little while and start with in before lunch and take a, uh, a, an even deeper look this afternoon. But I thought I'd stop here and see if there were questions. We have microphones for those questions. So please wait for the mic so that people listening to the tapes can hear what you said.
1: So in, um, when you were going down the list, you gave the, the chocolate ice cream um, analogy, and you said that the the Vaden is created when we taste that ice cream, but I think modern neuroscience sees it that it, it happens much before that. You know, We might even think that um, when we first have the thought, or even maybe before we have the conscious thought of ice cream, I'm going to go to the store. And if you look at... The firing of the reward centers that um, is most intense before the physical contact or getting the electronic device or you know the, the embrace with partner. Right. So, do you have any comments to yeah. talk about that?
0: The reason you crave the ice cream. The reason you're craving the ice cream is that you have the memory, it produces Pleasant Vedana. It's not the taste this time. Okay, if you go to the store and you never had chocolate ice cream, those neurons aren't firing to say, oh, this is going to be really great. It's just a round container and you're headed for the frozen pizza. right, but you've had the chocolate ice cream and you had the Pleasant Vedana. And because of that, when you go to the store, whether it was to get the ice cream or the frozen pizza. You see the ice cream, and now, yeah, the remembering of that contact that produced the pleasant vedna is what makes your hand go out and buy the ice cream. But it's only the taste. If you had, say, come across someone who had chocolate ice cream, and it was sitting there, and you never tasted it, even though you saw it, I doubt you'd be craving it. So it, the craving really only arises as a result of the Vedana. And the craving is a memory of how good the Vedana are. As you say, it generally the, the anticipation of the reward and everything else is there. Uh, but that anticipation is based on the fact that you've had the contact previously. So that's how I would address that.
2: Yeah, I see it the same way, because even when you eat it, the taste is pleasant. But it's the thought of the next bite that creates the next craving. Right.
0: Yeah. Watch when you're eating. If the food's really good, you're spending more of your time and energy loading your fork or your spoon for the next bite than enjoying the really good one. Yeah.
3: I didn't um, fully grasp... um, or, or maybe I wasn't paying attention when you discuss bec- becoming in this link
0: uh, or in this sequence. Is becoming like the things that we do to create a self? Right. Becoming is a translation of the Pali word bhava. You sometimes see it translated in this as existence. Uh, I think that Tan Jeff really hit the nail on the head with his becoming. If you haven't read his little booklet, The Paradox of Becoming, yeah, very good. And that will give you much more a sense of the broad range of becoming. Uh, The becoming has, we might say, three senses in, in the sense that there's the becoming in this life. Right? I... I want to make a sense of self for, my, for myself. I want to be thought well of things like this. So there's this kind of becoming, a, what we might call selfing. Then there's the becoming of the next life. Right? In my next life, I want to be born in heaven and I want to have a harp and I want to eat ambrosia all day. Or in my next life, I want to be born back here and I want to be richer and I want to... Whatever. All right? So the looking at the next life. And this is Tana, th- th- Bhava Tanha, Tanha being craving, literally meaning thirst. So Bhava Tanha, craving for becoming. So becoming in this life with a self or becoming in a future life with, you know, living in heaven or living on earth. There's another type of craving associated with becoming and that's Vibhava Tanha which is the craving for non-existence, which can ex- happen in this life with things like suicide or not so drastically getting drunk or escaping into trashy novels or into the internet or bad movies or whatever you do to obliterate being fully present with what's here. Or vibhava-tanha in the sense of craving for no future life. Remember, at the time of the Buddha, there were a large number of Approaches to spirituality the primary one being Brahmanism and there your craving was You wanted to become One with Brahma, right? So you're merging with Brahma and the Buddha's going no, I don't crave that The Jains wanted to get off the wheel of samsara escape dukkha by never coming back. So they were craving To get out of coming back and the Buddha's going no 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 don't do that craving either. That's gonna cause you dukkha And then there's all the craving that we do around trying to make ourselves something perfect in this life. So this is the broader picture of becoming. When you try and make the linear thing happen, the contact, vedna, craving, clinging, becoming, birth, that's one of the spots in which it breaks down and it really isn't linear. We can see that becoming is what leads to birth in the sense of Mother Nature has this urge to give birth to things, and we can call that becoming. But then when we look at the becoming that arises due to the clinging, it's not really the same sort of becoming. right? It's not about a new birth or anything. It's about clinging and then identifying around it and, and stuff like that. So as I say, uh, trying to make a linear uh, Interpretation breaks down in some places and the clinging becoming is one of those places where it breaks down
3: uh, Did you you discuss ignorance
0: the last? Uh, When I started yeah ignorance ignorance of what's really there or To put it in another way out of ignorance. We concoct our view of the universe our we We take the holistic universe and we ignore that it's holistic and we break it up into pieces and we identify this piece is good and that piece is bad and this piece is the most important piece of all because it's me without realizing that it's all vastly interconnected.
3: Yes, Someone once made the observation that you look out on a crowd of people Hmm. maybe hundreds of thousands of people in this crowd and every single one of them thinks they're the most important person in the universe.
0: (laughs) Right, yeah. I mean, if I were to take a survey and everybody were to answer honestly, who's the most important person in the room, I might get some second-place votes, but I'd only get one first-place vote. <laughs> right.
4: Um, I was going to mention that uh, I've heard Bhava, um, not ex- maybe not exactly
0: translated as, but interpreted as habitual tendencies, which... I feel like helps a little bit in that non-linearity thing that that clinging kind of brings the habitual tendencies forth, doesn't necessarily fully create them, but it sort of triggers them. And then those lead to action and birth of action. Right. And especially if you look at it as necessary condition. A necessary condition for habitual tendencies is clinging. Mm -hmm. Right. So, yeah, very good.
3: I wonder if you could say something about the relationship between um, this, uh, the concoctions and Sonia, uh, and the per- the perception, the aggregate perceptions. Um, we concoct the world, but also we perceive the world. Seems hardwired in some ways, right? And as opposed to the fabrications, which are sort of not. I wonder if you could.
2: Right. The, the
0: word Sankara has a very broad meaning in the sense of referring to literally everything other than Nibbana. Alright. So everything other than Nibbana is a Sankara. So even our perceptions are Sankaras in one sense, in the broadest sense of the word. Anything that arises is a sankara and anything that arises also ceases so all of this is sankara so looking at our interaction with our senses in another way via the five aggregates the five khandas there is the sense organ and the sense object and the coming together of This and these two and consciousness, sense consciousness, is contact. So you've got the fifth aggregate and the first aggregate, the sense consciousness and the sense organ and the sense object coming together. And that's the contact. That's followed immediately by Vedana, which is hardwired in many instances. The Vedana is the initial categorization of a sensory input And there are three possibilities, pleasant, unpleasant, neither. Or what we would call neutral. That seems to be hardwired. If I strike the bell, it sounds pleasant. This is because it's producing overtones that are ratios of small whole numbers. And our ear interprets that as pleasant. If I had a blackboard and I scrape my fingernails down it, it produces unpleasant because it's producing ratios for the overtones that are very large numbers, and we find it unpleasant. So the five senses stuff seems to be somewhat hardwired. Now, it's not totally hardwired. For example, let's say you go to Bali for the first time and you hear gamelan music, which uses a different scale and so forth. You might find it weird because it's unfamiliar and you're not finding it particularly pleasant but that's because there's a lot of context there and a lot of mental processing that's going on the actual sound made by each of those hammers striking is pleasant and if you can just get over the fact that it doesn't sound like Western music then it becomes quite beautiful right so it First, the gamelan music is producing the unpleasant vedna, but because it's complex enough and there's enough mental processing going on, it's not just being processed by the ear. There's the rhythm and the remembering of what just happened before it in terms of tones. You can adjust that, and then it becomes quite pleasant. So even though the vedna are hardwired at their most basic level, there's a little bit of processing that can go on. This can happen over time. Remember those horrible vegetables you had to eat as a kid that you now like very much? So your sense of taste. I mean, they tasted of unpleasant Vedana when you were a kid, and now they taste quite nice. So there's a little bit of ability to change things there. Then when you get to perception, that's dependent on really the culture in which you grow up. I mean, we know this is a bell, because we're Buddhist, right? But someone who had never thought of this being a bell would just see a bowl, right? If they come from a culture where nobody strikes this with a stick, and I say, what is this? They say, a bowl. If I say to you guys, what is this? You say, it's the bell, right? So there's an interpretation that's coming in based on our cultural background. And so, in a sense, that's concocted as well. The Buddha pulled out particularly our interpretation as something to pay attention to because we often misinterpret what's going on. We have our database of objects or ideas or whatever, and we look up the input and we go, oh, bowl, that's what it is, a bowl, or helmet, or whatever. So we are concocting this. And then he uses the word concoction, sankara, as the catch-all term for the fifth of the, for the for the fourth of the aggregates, the thoughts and emotions and all the papancha that results from that, and the memories. Does that
3: somewhat? I'm, because I'm, I'm 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 the distinction between sanya and sankara is. Uh, perhaps a little blurrier.
0: Yeah, I I would say that sanya, the perception bit, is the naming it. But that's in the broader sense of the word sankara, a sankara as well.
3: They're they're clearly um, interrelated as well. Right.
0: And then the word sankara is used specifically in the five aggregates to refer to what comes after you've named it. Oh, I've got to get me one of those. I wonder where he bought it. I wonder how much it costs, etc.
1: Right.
4: It seems to me that where we get stuck is the uh, aspect of after perception and naming it, um, it gets, um, once it becomes an object, we get fixed into its purpose. Oh, that's a bowl. Well, it could be a bed chamber. It could be a variety of things. In a way, that's where art sort of takes the norm and brings it out into an abstraction and sort of breaks the the fixed views that we have. Art is an example, but we all seem to form, get stuck, and then place in our memory bank, oh, chocolate, I like it, fine. Right. Instead of uh, experiencing it new all the time, it's, it's, we're just relying on past memory.
0: Right, which is a very handy shortcut to, re- oh, yeah. to yeah. rely on the past memories, but it makes for sloppy processing of the environment because there's a lot more going on than just, oh, some more stuff that we remember. But yeah, you're right. And also note that between the Vedana and the craving is where we've been talking since Tony's question. Right? There's a lot that goes on between Vedana and craving. If dukkha is caused by craving, and you can eliminate the craving, then you eliminate the dukkha, right? if you get that necessary condition out of the way. If a necessary condition for craving is Vedana, then if you eliminate the Vedana, then there won't be any craving, there won't be any dukkha. But you're in trouble now because the Vedana is going to arise whenever there are sense contacts. That's The sense contacts are a necessary and sufficient condition for Vedana. So you've got to eliminate the sense contacts and now you're in really big trouble. right? You might guard your senses, which the Buddha recommended, so that you don't have quite as many vedana to deal with. But you've got to do something between the vedana and the onset of the craving. And in that gap is where perception takes place, and also lots of sankharas in the generalized sense of thoughts, emotions, and memories, some of which are beneficial, some of which are not a problem, and some of which are craving. And then you're in trouble.
2: It, would it be acceptable to think of sankara as kind of a preload of what of consciousness and perception and craving? Uh, and let me go a little further. like. And that's how, in my mind, Sankar includes kama, is because if I happen to be working with plants and things like that, the preload would make me think of that as a pot, possibly. And the same thing if I'm continually lusting after ice cream. I use the example, you know, the craving comes up up for the next thought, but the craving could be also preloaded. In sankara, to come up to savor, you know, this thought, and I'm not actually savoring, you know, that's the pleasant part. What I'm doing is kind of getting involved in the craving uh, of this of this particular bite. So I'm preloading the sankara, you know, and it's just it's going up, you know, a hundred thousand times per millisecond.
0: Right. Yeah. All, how we interact with the world is, as you say, preloaded based on the type of senses that we have. I mean, you've seen pictures of the electromagnetic spectrum and we've taken in this little tiny bit with our eyes. So we're preloaded to whatever comes in the visual field. It's based on the culture we're in. It's based on our previous experiences, the education we've had, the family we grew up in. So there's a lot of preloading that goes on which determines how we name things a pot or a bowl or a bell or whatever and how we react to things so there's a lot of stuff in there that happens between the contact and the onset of craving
2: yeah it's it almost seems like the scientists are almost seeing that we are we have decided something before we're conscious of making the decision Right, And it almost seems like that's where it's coming from Sankara.
0: Right. It's coming from the previously loaded stuff, as you said, the preloaded stuff. The idea is to be alert enough so that you're starting to override some of these preloads with some wisdom. So you don't just wind up eating a whole carton of ice cream
1: or whatever. Um, relevant to this discussion is that famous quote. I think it's from Majima Nikaya 109. No matter how you conceive of it, it is other than that. Um, is that... I, the, I'm not sure the Pali word for conceive, but I, I think that was the context of conceiving of the self or perceiving the self. Do you have any comments to make on that?
0: I think what I'm going to do is say... I'll address that in detail after lunch. <laughs> but yeah, it is other than how we perceive it. I mean, we've got limited ability to take in information. And we've got a limited processing unit. And we're trying to take in the entire universe. The universe is not made of a bunch of separate pieces. The separate pieces are our attempt to deal with it. So it's got to be other than how we perceive it. Or categorize it or anything else. It's far more complex than that. But sometimes we can categorize it and not have the full picture and it be useful. Like, you know, eat the peanut butter and jelly sandwich, don't eat the fingers. All right, useful thing to do. And sometimes, yeah, we think we got it all nailed down and we're wrong. That's why I started this by pointing out no holding to fixed views.
1: I've heard this phrased as hardening of the categories.
0: Right, hardening of the categories, yes, <laughs> definitely. Uh, would you
3: explain?
0: Uh... Just hold it real close.
3: Would you explain Papancha?
0: Papancha, would I explain Papancha? <laughs> yeah. Demonstrate. If you could. Demonstrate. Okay, everybody be real quiet and watch yourself think. That's Papancha. <laughs> Papancha, probably best translated as mental proliferation. Uh, one thought leading to another, often without regard to reality at all. For example, a woman says to her husband, please go to the market and get some potatoes. Yes, dear. He stands up, gets ready to walk out the door, and she says, be sure and get a good price. Yes, dear. So he starts walking to the market, and he's thinking, you know, you can get bad potatoes for a good price, or you can get good potatoes for a bad price, but getting good potatoes for a good price, that's really difficult, and you've got to watch these potato sellers. They'll put good potatoes on top, and then they'll put the bad potatoes on the bottom. And, you know, you think you're getting a good price, but, you know, it's, it's, it, you get gypped. And sometimes they put a rotten potato in there. I hate the way rotten potatoes smell. At that point, he arrives at the potato cellar and says, you can keep your rotten potatoes, and walks off. That's Papancha. Majjumanikaya 18, the Honeyball Sutta. Very, very good sutta on Papancha. Probably the best one. Anything else? Okay. What I think we should do, uh, we should probably have another sitting. It's 11 o'clock now. So if we sit for, say, 45 minutes and then come back and I'll talk about Transcendental Dependent Origination and then we'll go to lunch. So if you need to use the restrooms or take a break or anything, do that. We'll start sitting, come back,